This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast, Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and what it means for your health and the health of your family. Welcome back. On today's show, we'll talk with renowned author and biologist, Dr. Sandra Steingraber, about her work at the nexus of science and public policy with regard to climate change and our desperate need to stop burning fossil fuels. Dr. Steingraber will be one of the leaders of the scientific delegation to this weekend's giant climate action march in New York City. Sandra Steingraber and Patty with the environmental news headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Any good news? Well, a whole lot is happening, but I have good articles here to share with our audience. The first one is a blog from Substack.com, and the title is The Dangerous Chemical Bill Gates is Coating Your Organic Produce With. Oh, boy. You can't even trust buying organic produce anymore, thanks to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Katy Perry, and Oprah. They're investors in a new company called Appeal, A-P-E-E-L, which makes a plant-based chemical that coats your produce with a protective layer you can't wash off, but it keeps the produce from turning brown or decomposing in a normal amount of time. This sounds like science fiction, really? Yeah, it's, this is, was the most terrifying of all the articles I okay. pulled for this week. Okay. Appeal says its coating chemical is made from purified mono and diglycerides, food ingredients that are found in a variety of food items that have become popular substitutes for trans fats. Mono and diglycerides are a byproduct of oil processing, including partially hydrogenated canola and soybean oils. So far, it sounds... You know, moderately, maybe okay. Still, we're trying to improve on nature, right? We're trying to outsmart nature. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you think by choosing organic, you're good to go, think again. On the company's website, they state, We have formulations that are OMRI listed for the growers and distributors of USDA certified organic produce. They claim their product helps reduce plastic, which might be true, but what else is it doing? If you're thinking that you'll just wash it off, you can't. When asked if appeal is a chemical, Jenny Du, the co-founder, states, quote, well, everything is in fact a chemical. We're all part of star stuff, which are elements that surround us to form chemicals. Oh, really? Come on. You'll find appeal stickers on produce in places like Costco, Trader Joe's, Sprouts, Vons, Walmart, Whole Foods, and Kroger. Holy Caruso. So exactly how old is that apple in your fridge? You'll never know. As time goes on, produce loses nutritional value, but you won't be able to tell how fresh it is because of the appeal coating. Your avocado might look like it was picked yesterday from a nearby farm, but it could be months old. According to scientists, most produce loses up to 30% of its nutrients just three days after being harvested due to light oxygen and heat. So isn't the solution to eat your food, you know, in a reasonable amount of time and not store it in the refrigerator? Or is the solution to spray it with some chemical that is going to preserve it way beyond its natural life? Well, you know how I'm going to respond to that. I I mean, we eat out of our garden and local farmers markets. Yeah. I'm appalled, actually, by this. This is dealing with food waste. Oh, my goodness. So we won't have any food waste now because we're coating all of our produce. 
I don't think most so of So that our, it doesn't degrade yeah, properly. I don't what think, is this? I don't think most of our food waste is coming from people throwing out an apple that's gotten too old. I think our food waste is coming, A, from people who don't eat all the food they have, and B, things that aren't perfect, right? And restaurants, of course. There's Restaur a lot of food waste coming yeah. off restaurants. Oh, boy. Okay, what else you got? Okay, well, this is my most important one, and this is published by ProPublica, written by Peter Elkind, and ah. the title is, The FCC is Supposed to Protect the Environment. It doesn't. Peter Elkind, back on the beat here. Back He's on the beat. He's such a great reporter. Yeah. All right. In a mountainous forest in southwest Puerto Rico, workers cleared a patch to make room for a 120-foot cell phone tower intended for use by AT&T and T-Mobile. The site, as the tower company later acknowledged, destroyed the nesting habitat of the Puerto Rican nightjar, a tiny endangered songbird. Fewer than 2,000 are believed to be alive today. In the northwestern New Mexico desert, a company called Sacred Wind Communications, promising to bring broadband to remote Navajo communities, planted a cell tower near the legally protected Pictured Cliffs archaeological site, which contains thousands of centuries-old tribal rock carvings. And in Silicon Valley, a space startup pursued plans to equip thousands of satellites to use mercury fuel in orbit, even as an Air Force official at one of the possible launch sites voiced extreme concern that the toxic element could rain back down on Earth. Holy cow. You may be surprised to learn that these potential harms fall under the jurisdiction of the Federal Communications Commission. Few people think of the SCC as an environmental cop. It's known for regulating television and radio and overseeing the deployment of communications technology. But the agency also has a broad mandate to ensure that technology doesn't damage the environment. The task includes everything from protecting wildlife and human health to preserving historic sites and even preventing aesthetic blight. This role is particularly critical now, as the FCC presides over a nationwide build-out for 5G service, which will require 800,000 new small-cell transmitters, those perched on street poles and rooftops near schools, apartments, and homes. But even with this massive effort underway, the FCC has refused to revise its radiation exposure limits, which date back to the era of flip phones. In addition, the agency has cut back on the environmental reviews that it requires while also restricting local government's control over wireless sites. And as the satellite fuel example reflects, the FCC's ambit extends even into space. The agency is licensing thousands of commercial satellites at a moment when the profusion of objects circling the planet is raising concerns about collisions in space, impediments to astronomy, pollution, and debris falling back to Earth. They have no authority to license things in space. Can I just say this is the FCC and nobody's ever given them that authority? They just kind of took it on and said, we're going to do this in violation of international treaties and all kinds of things? <sighs> To call the FCC's environmental approach hands-off would be an understatement. The agency operates on the honor system, delegating much of its responsibility to the industries that it regulates. It allows companies to decide for themselves whether their projects require environmental study, and if the companies break the rules, they're expected to report their own transgression. Few <laughs> do. Yeah. There's a surprise. 
The FCC's inaction can have dire consequences. For years, the agency refused to take action, even as millions of birds died by flying into communications towers. Only after a federal appeals court castigated the agency for its apparent misunderstanding of its environmental obligations, did the FCC take steps that address some, but not all, of the problem. A misunderstanding, a misunderstanding. of their obligations. Mm-hmm. I see. They just didn't understand it. That An was apparent the misunderstanding. <laughs> In most instances, the scale of damages is relatively small. A half acre of demolished habitat, a mound of damaged Native American artifacts, an ugly tower looming over the National Scenic Trail. But the FCC authorizes thousands of projects each year, and the effects add up. These days, the FCC's laissez-faire approach is sparking resistance. Hundreds of conflicts have erupted across the country, triggered by citizens fearing risks to their health from wireless radiation, harm to their property values, damage to the environment, and the destruction of treasured views. Fights are raging from rural Puerto Rico, where protesters have been arrested for blocking roads used by cell tower construction crews, to New York City, where a dozen community boards protested the appearance of visually jarring three-story 5G poles on neighborhood sidewalks. In New York, state officials got involved, and then a local congressman. Finally, in late April, the furor grew intense enough that the FCC was forced to act. It belatedly ordered a company to halt construction after more than 100 poles had already been built and began the type of reviews that are supposed to be completed before breaking ground. In 2014, the FCC hired its first full-time environmental lawyer, Erica Rosenberg. Her mission was an afterthought at the agency. She told ProPublica, everyone was set on deployment. These environmental laws just got in the way. It was just the culture of the place, she said. Nobody cared. Wow, isn't that some indictment of a federal yeah. agency with a mandate yeah. to protect the yeah. environment? And, and, and Rosenberg then, quit in frustration yeah, in 2021. Yeah. 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 Wow. So there's your FCC. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hard the at work. FCC who works for the telecommunications industry. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Starting this Friday, millions of people around the world will take to the streets to demand a fair, rapid, and equitable end to the burning of fossil fuels and that our political leaders take serious action now. This will culminate in New York City on Sunday with a massive march to end fossil fuels as world leaders attend the United Nations Secretary General's Climate Ambition Summit. Science has proven that the biggest cause of climate change is the burning of fossil fuels coal, oil, and gas. The fossil fuel industry and its enablers are responsible for the climate crisis and drive a predatory and destructive economic system that harms people and the planet. And yet nothing seems to change in terms of our official government policy. And that is really frustrating for scientists. It has been my lifelong lesson that I seem to need to learn over and over again as a biologist that there's never sufficient data to trigger a change in environmental policy. That never happens. Nobody's coming to take the science to the decision makers and explain how policy should be made based on science. It's nobody's job. So we scientists have to do that ourselves. That's Dr. Sandra Steingreber best-selling author, biologist, and now senior scientist with the Science and Environmental Health Network. 
If you're not familiar with the writing of Sandra Steingraber, you're in for a real treat. She's the author of a trilogy of award-winning books on environmental health, Living Downstream, An Ecologist's Personal Investigation of Cancer and the Environment, Having Faith, An Ecologist's Journey to Motherhood, and Raising Elijah, Protecting Our Children in an Age of Environmental Crisis. Dr. Steingraber recently wrote an essay about the looming catastrophe of our warming oceans, and she begins with Rachel Carson's book, The Sea Around Us. Our idea of her is that she was prescient. She was brilliant. Rachel Carson was right, right? Like all kinds of women with breast cancer have marched carrying signs saying Rachel Carson was right. And our understanding of her is that she had this ability to foresee things and was ahead of her time. And that is true, but it's not because she was sort of mystical or had some ability to, um, you know, some kind of supernatural powers. It was, she's just a really good scientist and was she was able to look at databases across the scientific literature and piece together trends from really obscure sources. Like she figured out that former fighter pilots who then were, after World War II, recruited to be crop dusters, had higher rates of diabetes. And then from that, was able to piece together that pesticides that they were spraying like DDT probably were interfering with their hormone systems. And she was right about that. But she, she looked at those databases and she looked at what was happening to chickens and roosters who were being fed uh, grain that was laced with pesticides and, and then was able to pull these disparate data together and make conclusions that were correct. And she was very good at that, but she wasn't exactly like, she wasn't like mystical or prescient or anything, right? My particular column this month focuses on this big thing that she was really wrong about. And she was wrong in a really big way because she wrote, it was her best-selling book, right? The Sea Around Us, which came out in 1951, smack in the middle of the 20th century, in which the ocean is the main character of the book. And she's very clear that the ocean is not, this is not an ocean story in the sense that the ocean is the scenery for a human seafaring voyage or something. Humans aren't in the story at all. The ocean is the main character. And she shows us using the cutting edge science of oceanography and marine biology of the time, the way in which the sea drives and determines all the cycles of life on Earth, including our climate. And she's right about that, the way in which ocean currents and the ice, sea ice are, a she called it a barometer um, that determine the climate. But in general, the sea appears as magisterial, as formidable, as all powerful. And then, after the book was published in 51, she began to look at data on what was happening with above ground atomic bomb testing, which was seeding the oceans as well as all across the US and including, you know, inside children's teeth with radioactive fallout. And there was radioactive dumping going on in the ocean that was actually seeding long live radioactive isotopes into the entire food chain. And this could affect things ocean wide. And that was astonishing to her and it created almost an existential crisis to believe that human beings could not just contaminate one small place, but could affect an entire ecosystem like the ocean. And so in, she, she actually published a second edition of the book in 1960, nine years later, in which she admitted that um, she was wrong and then included radioactivity in the ocean. And so her mea culpa was written in a way that, look, not only me is wrong about this, but we are all wrong about this, right? Um, and she talked about the reasons why it's so easy to overlook this data. She talked about how there's a comfort in the belief 
that at least the ocean was inviolate and beyond man's ability, and she, of course, she used the word man at the time, beyond man's ability to change and to despoil. But when you see data to the contrary, you can't write about the ocean anymore in the atomic age without thinking the, these unthinkable thoughts and coming to terms with what she called this ominous problem. She also pointed out that the ongoing practice of dumping radioactivity in the ocean out of a mistaken belief that the ocean was so vast and so much bigger than all of us that it would only have negligible effects. Um, she said, the whole practice, despite protestations of safety by the regulatory agency, rests on the most insecure basis of fact. And I mean, I think that has so much relevance to us today that we know so much about the climate crisis and you know, scientists are ringing the alarm bell about ominous problems, and yet our policies act as though we're still in 1951 and we don't know any of these things. And our policies rest on, to use Carson's words, the most insecure basis of fact. And in the next part of my essay, I um, look at the crisis in the oceans created by not just heating of the water, which is creating these marine heat waves, but also acidification when carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is, you know, a third higher than it used to be, when that diffuses and dissolves into ocean water, it turns into carbonic acid. And so we see now that the whole ocean is 30% more acid than it, than it used to be. That is causing organisms that have shells, um, shells being made of calcium carbonate, to dissolve because um, calcium carbonate will go into solution at, at when the pH reaches a certain point. And that includes, of course, coral reefs, which were beloved by Carson. She wrote a lot about. So I was really interested in the way that uh, these marine heat waves affect coral reefs because when the temperature gets to a certain point, coral will expel the plankton that they live in symbiotic relationship to. The plankton provides corals their food source. So they'll just evict the plankton from their little polyps. <laughs> and when the temperatures get to a certain point, and if the heat waves don't last too long, after they're over, they'll welcome, they'll, you know, they'll, the landlords that they are, they'll welcome their tenants back home and the corals don't necessarily die even if they go through a bleaching event. The, the, the plankton provide the brilliant colors of the corals that we see. Um, but if the heat wave goes on too long, then they don't welcome the plankton back in and then that's when coral reefs bleach and just die and can't back. And that's just because of marine heat waves. But then in addition, you've got acidification, which causes the coral, which is has these calcium carbonate skeleton to start to dissolve and become fragile and, and frail. And so you've got both things going on that can potentiate each other. So it's like um, the coral has osteoporosis essentially from the acidification. And then at the same time, their food source is driven out by the high temperature. So they've got this double problem. And so that's what contemporary marine biologists are interested in. And Carson would have been fascinated by this science. She couldn't foresee it. She didn't have a working theory of climate change. Sharks have been around in our oceans for more than 400 million years, long before dinosaurs. They're fast, cunning, and excellent hunters. Many sharks have several rows of teeth and can lose and replace thousands of teeth in their lifetimes. But sharks are in trouble. Many sharks get caught accidentally in fishing lines, and some are hunted and killed for their fins, which are a delicacy in Asia. Sharks are also suffering from our worldwide plastic pollution problem, especially those that are filter feeders. But now they're facing an even more existential crisis. Their skin is dissolving.
shark skin is also like corals or is sensitive to acidification. So we're actually dissolving sharks in the ocean. And sharks, of course, are more than anything in the ocean, a kind of symbol of the power uh, formidability of the ocean as a, as a top predator. So I think what we're seeing happening with the sharks illustrates what Carson said in 1960 in her preface of her book that we, when there's new data, we have to not just take it into account, but also in some cases, it forces us to change our whole belief system about what our relationship to the environment is. It's more than just new data. It shakes us to our core because we thought that there is something called nature that's bigger than us, um, that the sea is the cradle of life itself and is, and the oceans are downhill from literally everything else on the planet. And so everything runs into the sea. So it's the beginning and the end. <laughs> and so it's no accident that Carson wrote uh, the sea around us in these kind of biblical tone. She used a lot of iambic pentameter. Um, and so the tone of the book itself is very dignified and she actually opens it with a quote from Genesis. So the, the sort of religiosity of the sea um, was in, very intentional for her. And so she was always pointing to the sea as something bigger than us, beyond us. Um, but now, it, you know, we have to, it's almost um, epistemological. We have to change our whole relationship to how we think about the ocean as all powerful to, to one of the most fragile systems on earth with all kinds of consequences for us, of course, because um, just to speak again of coral reefs, they provide a nursery for, you know, a quarter at least of all the fish in the sea. And um, half the world's populations um, who live along the coast rely on seafood for their protein sources. And those folks aren't just gonna stay there and drown and starve. Uh, that's when uh, climate crisis starts to create social unrest and mass migrations and climate refugees and so on. One of the things Rachel Carson decried in The Sea Around Us was the damage being inflicted on the ocean by radiation fallout from atomic bomb testing, as well as the dumping of radioactive waste into the ocean, a practice which continues today. The fact that we're still dumping radioactivity, that we still rely on power sources like nuclear power, um, in the case of Fukushima, that underwent a meltdown during the earthquake and the resulting tsunami that happened, um, that we don't have solutions other than, well, let's just dump it into the sea and dilute it, right? I mean, that was, even in the mid-20th century, something that Rachel Carson referred to as this barbaric practice. And yet here we are, a whole, you know, anyone born in 1950 is a very old person now. So it's a whole lifetime, right, of doing the same practices, even though the way we think about it is completely changed. There's this growing disconnect between what the science is telling us and um, what our policies should be. And that's why I'm really glad I work for, for SEN, because it has been my lifelong lesson that I seem to need to learn over and over again as a biologist that there's never sufficient data to trigger a change in environmental policy. That never happens. Nobody's coming to take the science to the decision makers and explain how policy should be made based on science. It's nobody's job. So we scientists have to do that ourselves, except nobody really usually pays us to do that. 
So into, the, into this breach are certain really important organizations. Physicians for Social Responsibility is one, and Science and Environmental Health Network then is another. So I'm just very proud, and I feel like it's a Carsonian idea that we work very closely with frontline communities who are paying high prices. Like right now, we're working very intensely to stop these carbon capture and storage projects that will build pipelines of liquefied carbon dioxide under intense pressure right through rural communities. And, we, and they're under-regulated, they're dangerous, and climate capture actually incentivizes further fossil fuel use, and it actually doesn't really work to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it for all time. It's just out of sight, out of mind. And it's, it's a basically a publicly funded sewer system for the fossil fuel industry. As we said in our introduction, Dr. Steingraber is the senior scientist at the Science and Environmental Health Network, a nonprofit organization that brings together experts in law, ethics, and science and creates tools for action. So Science and Environmental Health Network has placed itself as a kind of convener of conversation where we pull all these frontline communities together, we pull all the best scientists together, we pull attorneys together to see if we can understand what the problem is, develop messaging and communication strategies to talk with folks about what we know about the scientific risks for the climate and for public health. And then also the attorneys are all, always busy figuring out how these things are permitted, how the environmental risk assessments are going and where the points of vulnerability are that are actionable, right? And so working where science meets public policy is exactly what Carson tried to do at the end of her life. So I feel like what we're trying to do at Science and Environmental Health Network is really, we're a little shop, um, but we're trying to live in the spirit of Rachel Carson and do that work where it's not, it's not enough, in other words, for me as a biologist to pull all the science together and say, my job is done. It's not done until that science is turned into policy. And that is um, a task that requires not just scientists to be involved, but also it has to be backed by really strong legal support and by old-fashioned organizing. And there's a role for the arts and for music and for different forms of, you know, visual media um, to play a role. The Mountain Valley Pipeline is a natural gas pipeline that, when completed, would stretch 300 miles across West Virginia and Virginia, transporting liquefied shale gas to be burned for power, cooking, and heating. After years of legal challenges, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in July to allow construction to resume on the $6.6 billion pipeline. This despite the proven harm that pipelines pose for the environment and the fact that our climate cannot sustain more burning of fossil fuels. Even so, says Sandra Steingraber, we need to keep working. There was a massive movement in Appalachia to stop that pipeline involving all kinds of activism and extending to civil disobedience, um, but also, you know, various smart attorneys got involved and realized the illegality of the way the pipeline was being built. And it's been tied up in all kinds of courts uh, for violation of water rules and, and endangered species laws. Um, and yet what we just saw was an act of Congress um, led by Joe Manchin, which basically just ran over all those all that legal work and just said, we want expedited approval of the pipeline. So um, sometimes then, even when the courts work, they, 
it's, they, they get interfered with. So they're just, the actual targets and the strategies and the tactics are, are gonna be different for every state and different nationally and different internationally. So I'm, I'm myself am preparing to march in New York City on the 17th as part of the End Fossil Fuels March. And I'm one of the organizers of the Scientist Hub. We're, um, that march is going on on September 17th and I encourage everyone in the New York City area to join us in the streets. I mean, sometimes it's just, there needs to be a big public spectacle that that creates a kind of narrative and it, and it creates expectations and it changes norms in the way we think about things. So the United Nations is going to be meeting to um, pressure nation states to get serious about climate policy and the march on September 17th will take place in advance of the UN meeting. And I think by civil society coming together, faith leaders, um, health professionals, labor, all are marching in these hubs. And then we scientists will be marching too. And we'll, we'll be the ones that have data on our signs, right? But our message as scientists is that the demands of this march to end fossil fuels, the president needs to declare a climate emergency. We have to end fossil fuel uh, extraction on public lands. There's basically four big demands that we scientists are saying, look, we have all the data to say that these demands are reasonable. And that is not sufficient, you know, for the policymakers to say, oh, well, if all you scientists say that this is correct, then okay, sure. But, but we're still, we're one voice, right? And by marching together with others, including uh, labor groups who are really interested in the jobs that renewable energy will, will create, by marching with health professionals who have a message for the amount of childhood asthma, strokes, and heart attacks caused by air pollution, which is really just another name for fossil fuel combustion byproducts. The message is powerful and very public in a kind of spectacle way. And those things also really matter and can change um, the conversations on the inside as policymakers meet. So that's an example of how mass public pressure and changing the narrative is also influential. Dr. Sandra Steingraber, author, biologist, senior scientist at the Science and Environmental Health Network, and one of the leaders of the scientific delegation at this weekend's March to End Fossil Fuels. If you want to join the march, you can get all the details at www.endfossilfuels.us. That's endfossilfuels.us. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest and friend, Dr. Sandra Steingraber, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>